right. It's so right that we declare your name, Jesus. So beautiful. And to think that one day very soon, all those who have called on your name and are truly saved in you, that will be our anthem for eternity. No more fears, no more fears of wars, no more fears of diseases, no more fears, like just gone, obliterated in the presence of the king. Every tear wiped away, every sorrow healed, every pain healed, every praise lifted. It is right that we praise this way. So I thank you. Thank you for your presence here, Lord. But you're not done. There's more ministry you want to do. So find us ready to receive it. Not hard into it in self-righteousness and pride. But humble, needy, contrite and broken in heart and trembling at your word. Find a church right now, God, that will humble themselves under your authority and say, yes, God, I'm done being defensive. I'm coming and I want to live faithfully under your authority, but would you help me? It's hard. The struggle with sin is so real. The temptations are so great. And yet he who is in us is greater than he who's in the world. So may we find great hope here today, great joy, great conviction, great brokenness, great refreshment, great faith. And we cast those on you right now as an act of faith. God, all those cares, anxieties, and concerns. Oh, Lord, meet with your people. We wish to see Jesus. Guard my mouth from error and say what you want to say, what you intended to say through these 11 verses today. In Jesus' name we pray. Church, if you agree, say amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, loved ones. Let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verses 14 to 24. If you do not have a Bible with you today, praise the Lord. Our ushers are coming up right now. They're coming to the sides and they put your hand up because we want to put a copy of God's word in your lap so you can continue to follow along verse by verse, line by line as we carry on in John chapter 7. It's on page 521 in those Bibles being handed out. 521. Well, we continue on in our series today called Life in the Sun, going through chapters 5 to 7 of the Gospel of John. And there's only a few, uh, few more parts of this chapter 7 to go before we move on to our upcoming series, which I'll tell you about in a little while in the next few weeks. Very excited for that. But last week, as we rounded the corner to the final chapter in John 7, we looked at, in verses 1 to 13, what a life looks like that is lived trusting in the sovereignty of God. We looked last week, what a life looks like as it is lived trusting in the sovereignty of God. Our small groups had wonderful discussion on that and just so beautiful to see the gospel work here. But you might be here saying, maybe you weren't here last week, you're like, what is God's sovereignty? Well, a quick reminder, God's sovereignty is his exercise of power and authority over all things. 
God's sovereignty is God's exercise of power and authority over all things. And last week, we looked at two main areas Jesus emphasized in verses 1 to 13. Trusting God for his timing and trusting God for his way. But if you're like me, you ended that saying, well, yes, I want to live my life trusting in the Lord for his timing and way, but where do I even start? How do I, how do I even do that? What does that like, practically look like on a street level? Where do I even start with that? And this leads to our question today, which ultimately determines our faithfulness in that And it comes down to this question right here. Write this down. Whose authority is going to shape how I live today? Whose authority is going to shape how I live today? This is a penetrating question. Why? Because it determines everything else. It determines what happens in your marriage, how you treat your spouse. It determines how you parent your kids. It determines how you work at your job. It determines how you handle your finances. It determines how you make decisions. It determines how you process an opportunity that's in front of you or a decision you need to make. It determines how you go through the trial that you're facing and suffering that you're facing. And maybe you're here today and you're going through that. This question is going to determine your response to that. Whose authority is going to shape how I live today? And you say, why is it so important that that the writer John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would dedicate these 11 verses to this truth? Because there's a problem when you look around very quickly and look inward. Though we say we want God's way, and we want God's will, we'll often say that, uh, we don't often want to live by God's authority. I want God's way. I want God's will for my family, but we don't want to live by God's authority. Yeah, I want to see the glory of God, but I don't want to live under the authority of God. I want to have the authority. I want to make the decisions I want to make. I want to spend my money how I want to spend it. I want to treat my employees how I want to treat them. I want to treat my wife how I think she deserves to be treated. We often say we want God's will, but we don't want to live under God's authority. And the result of this discrepancy is that we live lives of confusion and not clarity in Christ. We live lives of stress and not confidence in Christ. We live lives of anxiety and not peace in Christ. We live lives of fear and not faith in Christ. And ultimately it comes down to this, we live lives of pride instead of humility before Christ. But the truth we must understand today that shapes everything else is this. You'll see it on the screen. To live in the will of God, we must live by the authority of God. If you and I are going to live in the will of God, we must live by the authority of God. And here in our text, we see through the life of Christ, through his teaching, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, God himself, we see two truths that we must live by in his power. If we are to see him for who he truly is and live faithfully under his authority. And so let's honor the authority 
of God's word as we stand to read John chapter 7, verses 14 to 24. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, the first truth we see here in the first five verses is this. To live faithfully under the authority of Christ, you must believe his word, the divine authority. To live faithfully under the authority of Christ, you must believe his word, divine authority. This is where everything starts. And the question that you and I are confronted with in this first section of the text is this. Jesus Christ speaks the truth of God Will I trust and obey him? That's where everything starts, right here. Jesus Christ speaks the truth of God. Will I trust and obey him? So let's get our context here. We're now in Judea, which is southern Israel. You see, we're specifically, we're in the capital of Judea, which is Jerusalem. So remember, Jesus has just been up there at the Sea of Galilee, and then he's come down, and now here he is in Jerusalem. And it's October, don't forget, And Jesus, along with every Jewish male 12 years and older, has traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. In the previous text, it was called the Feast of Booths. It's the same festival. And just a reminder, it was held over seven days. And its purpose was to celebrate God's provision for the Israelites in the wilderness. And this was the feast that was marked by the greatest amount of joy because the harvest was coming in. It's October, right? And so it's October and the harvest is coming in. You've got the olives, you've got the grapes, you've got all of this produce, and there's just huge joy, huge feasting and celebration. Except here. The mood at this feast is very different. The mood at this feast is not one of joy, but it's of intense hatred and increasing hostility and rejection toward Jesus because, if you remember, his claims to be the Son of God and Messiah, God himself, that he was teaching the people in the Galilee area just six months earlier. Now recall, in our previous text last week, Jesus has gone secretly from Galilee down to Jerusalem. 
He didn't go publicly. His brothers were like, go show yourself to the world. But no, it wasn't God's timing for him in that. So he went in God's way, which was to go secretly to the feast because the opposition was rising against him so much that the Jewish leaders are seeking him out. Remember, they're literally seeking him out to kill him. And don't forget, Jesus is the talk of the town, remember? There was much muttering about him. And so he's the talk of the town. So if he shows up, he's going to be recognized very quickly. But now, here we are halfway through the feast. Feast is half over. Watch this. Halfway through the feast, and even in the face of rising opposition, it's time for Jesus to go public. Here we go. It's time to go public, and he begins his teaching ministry again. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. Love this. Let's tune in. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? See, he's no more undercover here. No more undercover. Around day three of the feast, Jesus heads to the temple in Jerusalem. <laughs> and he begins teaching the people. So let's get a little pick here. So there's Jerusalem, okay? Walled city, and that's the temple of Herod. That's up there. The original temple, Solomon, was destroyed. And now Herod rebuilt this one. And this one's going to get destroyed in 70 AD. But we're not there yet. And so Jesus is heading right into the temple. Now, here's a close-up. Here's a close-up. Go ahead. So here we go. You got millions of people, and they're all crowding into this temple. Now you say, why the temple? Because the temple was the center of worship. If Jesus is going to go publicly, he's going right to the epicenter. And so here he is going public. He's going right up into the center of worship in the most public spot. And so Jesus is in the courtyard. He's in the courtyard. That's called the courtyard of the Gentiles. And so he's sitting there, and he's teaching them. Now, the word teaching, as we see here in um, verse 14, means this in the Greek. It means he's instructing from the Old Testament scriptures. Okay? Not significant, because this is what a rabbi is supposed to do. This is the one who has authority in Jewish society is supposed to do. Teach from the Old Testament scriptures. And so Jesus doesn't do random. We have to believe this. So why does Jesus do it this way? Because he's showing his position and authority. He's sitting in the spot teaching the, teaching the truth that rabbis are supposed to teach who were looked upon as the highest authority. And here's Jesus sitting down teaching the Old Testament scripture. He doesn't do random. He didn't pick that spot randomly because it had nice shade. And then in verse 15, we see this as the, as the Jews. The word for Jews there, if you recall, means religious leaders. The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they hear Jesus. Look at what they do. They hear this teaching. They hear the clarity. They hear his understanding. And they witness his command of the scriptures. They witness this. And what does it say? They marvel. The word there for marvel in verse 15 means they were amazed at him. Now, don't be fooled. This wasn't a positive amazement. It wasn't like, whoa, you're so cool. We were so wrong. Mm -mm. This is a negative connotation. Context is key. This is a negative reaction, amazement. And they say this. How can this guy, notice what they say in 15, how can this guy... Know so much about scriptures. He's putting us to shame. 
How can he know so much about the scriptures when he's never studied? Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? That he's never studied. The Greek for study means he's, been, he's never been discipled by a rabbi. He hasn't been to the elite rabbinical schools like we have. So who's this guy think he is? Where does he learn this stuff? So they're offended and they start coming at him. Where's this coming from? And Jesus responds. Look at his response in 16 to 18. Go back to the text. So Jesus answered them. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Here's Jesus' response. He says, the teaching that I am giving you, this command of the Old Testament scriptures, isn't anything new that I'm making up. My teaching comes from God Almighty himself. The source of my teaching, because here's why, here's why that's so important. Because the rabbis, it was oral tradition that was passed down to them. So the teaching was coming through man. All right? And so Jesus is like, forget man. My teaching is coming from God Almighty directly himself. The source of my teaching is God the Father. And he's the one who sent me here. Don't forget, he hearkens back to John chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, in the beginning was the Word. Capital W, because it's a name. It's Jesus' name. The Word of God. And in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So he says, the Father sent me here. I was with him. And so when I speak, here's what it means, guys. God speaks. It's a big word. When I speak, God speaks. His authority is my authority. And he goes on to say in verse 17, and if one's desire, this is, this is stunning, by the way, eyes on 17. He says, if one's desire is to truly do God's will, the Greek word there for will means to know the truth of God. If you really want to know the truth of God, and you really want to do what pleases him, that's the will of God, to know the truth and not just be a hearer of that, but a doer. If you really want to, desire to do God's will and not just say you want it not just hear it but actually want to live that out do what pleases him and what he promises to bless guess what God looks at your heart and those people are going to know the Greek word there for know means believe they're going to believe in both knowledge yeah I'm getting more knowledge about God I'm understanding him I'm growing in my knowledge of him but then in practice it's an experiential knowledge that Jesus is talking they're going to know they're going to have it confirmed in their hearts and in their minds that it is the truth of God because the Holy Spirit confirms it that this is the truth he says you're going to know the truth that I speak is from the authority of God, and I'm just not making it up on my own. I'm not speaking from the authority of man. God confirms the truth through his Holy Spirit as it's lived out increasingly in our lives. He says, you're going to know it. You're going to know God's power. You're going to know increasingly God's love. You're going to know his forgiveness. You're going to know his grace. You're going to know his mercy. You're going to know his conviction. You're going to know his glory. You're going to know his truth. Increasingly, if you earnestly want to do God's will, you're going to know it. He's not trying to hide it from you. But so often we don't get to that place, do we? We get there in our mouths. Yeah, 
God, I want your will, but actually I want to stay in my comfort zone because I'm not feeling qualified to do that. I'm feeling really inadequate to do that. Do you really want to know? Do you really? This is what Jesus is saying. If anyone's true desire is to do God's will, you're going to know it, not just in belief, not just hearing it, but in doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, he says, and unlike all the other false teachers here that seek their own glory from man, he always tells someone who's not teaching for the glory of God and glory of himself, they're seeking their own glory. This world is filled with people like that today. In the name of God, seeking their own glory. He says, you can be 100% sure that my teaching is true and isn't a deception because my goal isn't to glorify myself. Is that your goal today? Is that mine? Not to glorify ourselves. The word glorify there means to get praise, to get honor from man. To get honor in the eyes of the world. Is that our goal today? He says, my goal is not to get the glory from man, to glorify myself, but to seek. That means to strive after. The Christian life is one of striving after, glorifying the Father who sent me and is drawing people to himself. Now live in the text. I want you to notice something here. Those who truly, let's just camp out on this for a moment. Those who truly desire to follow Christ and live faithfully under his authority, doing the will of God, look at this, they will have the truth of God confirmed and authenticated in their hearts. Let me get that again. Those who truly want to do the will of God and live faithfully under Christ's authority will have the truth of God confirmed and authenticated in their hearts. How much of the confusion we have right now is we say we want God's will, but we want ours under our authority. And it leads to a state of confusion. Why? Because we're not seeking the glory of God. It means these people claiming Christ will not just be hearers of the word, but will be doers. Look at James 1.22. I see it on the screen. This is a command. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because if you only hear the word, but you don't do it, you're deceiving yourself. That's why Jesus says you're going to know God's will if you do it. It takes faith to step into what God calls us to. Otherwise, we wouldn't need faith. But so many of us, don't, we get to that point where God calls us to something. We see the truth of God and what he wants for our lives. And instead of stepping out in faith, we step back in self-preservation. It's too hard. The demand is too great. I can't do this. And Jesus is like, I, I, I'm greater. I've got what you need. I can do this. But will you trust me and see my truth confirmed in you? They will believe and know that it is the truth when they, and will humble themselves. That's a great word for today, humility. Humble themselves increasingly under the word of God's authority in each area of their lives. And so today... We see it all around. Many people say they want to follow God and do his will, but, they, but notice this. You can walk on a university campus. You can walk in a mall. You can walk down your street, walk in your neighborhood, and they, you know, there's 
Everybody's, a lot of people are willing to talk about God. Yeah, I want to I wanna do what pleases God. But notice this, one of two things happens. You mention the name of Jesus Christ and things turn hostile pretty quick. Just like the Jewish leaders. Yeah, I want to honor God, but mention Jesus, forget it. There's the first indicator. Or there's those claiming Christ and they say they want God's will, but they want it on their terms. Is that us this morning? I want God's will, but I want it on my terms. Forget what he's already made clear to me and he's called me to. Forget what ministry he's already entrusted me with. I want this on my terms. I'm bailing out. We see it happening all over the church. Here in Canada, across the world. I want to follow Jesus, but on my terms. I will be a hearer, but I will only be a doer of the truth of God when it's comfortable for me. When it's convenient for me and fits into my schedule and what skill set I think I have. When it's easy and it's in my timing, I will be a doer of the word when God's, God works how I expect him to. So it doesn't take faith. I'll be a doer of the word when there's no cost or sacrifice involved. The Christian life is a life of sacrifice, loved ones. Amen? Modeled to us by our Savior. You're going to be tired. You're going to feel inadequate. You're going to feel weary. You're going to wonder, can I keep doing this? Should I even be doing Listen, if God has called you to it, he'll see you through it. And you say, well, how do I know God's called you? You're in it. But Jesus makes it clear right here. Those who truly want to do the will of God will believe his word and they will submit to his authority by faith regardless if their feelings have caught up to their faith. Feelings are great followers, but they're horrible leaders. Regardless if their feelings have caught up, they will obey in the power of the Lord. They won't just be hearers of the word, but doers in his power. Why? Because they seek the glory of God and not their glory for themselves. The life is not about their glory. What's their glory? Through their comfort, through their convenience, through what they want to do. And ultimately, they're going to find life. Because here's here's the truth, the question that's going to penetrate the application here. Put on the screen, guys. You might be speaking, but whose glory are you truly seeking? I want God's will. I want God's glory. Really? Whose glory are you truly seeking? Just go before the Lord and ask him. God, where am I claiming your name? But I'm not committing to follow you. Claiming but not committing. You might be speaking, having all the right words, but whose glory are you truly seeking? When, here, here's some litmus. Whose glory are you seeking when you get fearful? Whose glory are you seeking when you want to find that comfort? Whose glory are you seeking the inadequacy? Whose glory are you seeking when it's not convenient? Whose glory are you seeking when you want control? There it is. Jesus just lovingly lays it out here. And here's here's what we need to understand. Those seeking the glory of God will not seek glory for themselves. They will submit to divine authority. He's the king. All hail the king. Question. Jesus Christ speaks the truth of God. Will I trust and obey him? 
This is where it starts. Will I live faithfully under God's authority? Will I trust and obey him? Hearing the words of God, will I trust him? Where are you living in unbelief and refusing to submit to the divine authority of Jesus Christ over your life? That was so convicting for me this week. And maybe you're here and you've never accepted him as your personal savior. Well, your first step is to stop rejecting him as your Lord and Savior. Just like the Jewish leaders were, saying, I want God, but I don't want Jesus. Uh Uh-uh. And your first step is to believe. To believe who Jesus says he is, the Son of God, sent by God, to be the Savior of the world, and that eternal life is found in him alone. If that's you this morning, that's your first step. To believing the truth and living out the will of God for the glory of God. Believers, if you've made that decision, let me ask you, where are you living in unbelief by refusing to submit to Christ and have become a hearer of the word but not a doer? Where are you a hearer but not a doer? And ultimately, as James 1.22 says, living in deception. And the enemy's doing a battleground in your mind. He's having a playground causing doubt, causing unbelief. Did God really call you to that? Did he? Did he really? No. Yeah. Did God really say? Can he really be trusted? That's exactly textbook Satan. Doubting the goodness and faithfulness of God. And so repent, loved ones. And you may say this. You may say this. Well, that's too hard to do what Christ is asking. He's put something in front of that. The command to obey, and it's too hard to do. I feel inadequate. I can't trust him. I just, I just want to seek my own glory and get comfortable and preserve myself. Listen, loved one, I want to encourage you with this truth. Here's some great gospel truth. Ready? Write this down on the screen. Christ will not ask from you what he's not first willing to do in you. Christ will never ask you and I anything, to do anything that he's not first willing to do in us first, to give us the wisdom, to give us the capacity. And of course he brings us to the end of ourselves because that's where we see his power displayed the most. He will not ask from you what he's not first willing to do in you, but the question is, will you submit to his authority and trust him or will you keep running on your own? You will not see it without submitting and humbling yourself under it. You won't see it. And that battleground's going to continue. To live faithfully under the authority of Christ, you must believe his word, that it is the divine authority. And as you believe his word, last point for today, ready? You must judge by his standard, the divine discernment. You must judge by his standards, divine discernment. And the question The last question we're confronted with today is this. To obey God's will, I must walk in his wisdom. Do I live, am I living with right judgment? Am I living with right judgment? Let's read verses 19 to 20. Let's go back to the text. Jesus says, Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon, exclamation mark. See, they're intense. That's a forceful statement. You have a demon. Start shouting at them. Who is seeking to kill you? See what happens here? Jesus continues to press into the religious leaders and expose their hypocrisy. 
He's exposing their hypocrisy, and he says, you have been given the law of Moses. What's the law of Moses? The Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, including the Ten Commandments, and in general, the Old Testament scriptures that outlined the law and how to live it out. He says, you've been given that law by Moses, and you're claiming you're keeping it, but you're not. What does that mean? You're rebelling against God's word. You're rebelling against God's will, but you're claiming you're keeping it. There it is again. Claiming, but not committing. And you're sinning against him. So why are you seeking to kill me? Because you think I have sinned against him. Remember in John 7, 1, it says they were seeking to kill him. These religious leaders. He says, yet in your, notice the hypocrisy. He says, yet in your desire to kill me, you're breaking the law yourselves. Remember that whole thing, thou shalt not kill? You're breaking the law by accusing me of wanting to kill me for thinking I broke the law. We got a mismatch here. Something's not right. It's called hypocrisy. It's called self-righteousness. He calls out their sin. Notice what Jesus does. He calls out their sin, and this is huge. Don't miss this. Calling out the sin of a Pharisee? Are you kidding? That's tantamount to going to war. The Greek word for Pharisee is pharisaios, which means separatist from sin. It means purist. And Jesus just launched it and says, you're not upholding the law. Boom. That's tantamount to war. Here he is just. But you're blinded by your own sin because you're filled with self-righteousness. And that's what self-righteousness does. It blinds us to our own sin. One of my mentors, Daniel Henderson, said it this way. Self-righteousness is like bad breath. Everybody knows you have it but you. We're blinded. Now everyone's going, we're the chicklets. You know, it's seriously. Seriously. Self-righteousness is like bad breath. Everybody knows you have it but you. It's so clear to see. It's just clear. When we accuse things in others, but we excuse them in ourselves. Ouch. Ouch. Aren't we the same, loved ones, as these Pharisees? Blind to our own sin and so easy to point it out to others? So easy. Here's, here's some symptoms of self-righteousness happening. Ready? We blame shift what's going on in our life on someone else. You're to blame for it. It's your fault. Here's another thing we do with self-righteousness. We heap unrealistic expectations on other people and expect them to raise up to our standard for them. Well, we would handle that differently. Here's another symptom. Litmus. We start to criticize. I didn't sign up for this, God. Litmus. Here's another one. We get defensive. We don't take counsel. I don't need to listen. Who made you the judge? Anyone here? Maybe just me? Feeling a bit convicted right now. 
loyalty. Loved ones, look what happens next in verse 20. The crowd gets into it. The crowd gets into it. The common people. And they lob the most serious charge yet at Jesus that's been lobbed to this point. Because of his slanderous words against the Pharisees. And they say to Christ forcefully, you have a demon. The word demon there means, that phrase means, you are demon possessed and you're speaking like a madman. You're calling out a Pharisee? You're speaking a madman. That's what happens when you call out a Pharisee. There's always retaliation. Say that again. That's what happens when you lovingly correct a Pharisee. There's always retaliation. Defensiveness. And look at Jesus' loving response in 21 to 24. He says this, Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you marvel at it? Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not, that's a command by the way, it's an imperative, circle that when you see that in the text. Do not judge by appearances. I'm going to say it again, loved ones. Here we go. Ready, ready? Do not judge by appearances. But notice what he says, the second command. But judge with right judgment judge with right judgment he says i did one work in verse 21 now what's he referring to john 5 what we started our series with john 5 1 to 17 when jesus healed the man lame man at the pool of bethesda and he did it on the sabbath remember he walks into the pools of bethesda sees the crippled man who's been lying there his whole life and he says take up your bed and walk And instead of seeing the awesomeness of God through that miracle, the self-righteous Pharisees, all they saw was, you broke a law. They missed seeing the glory of God. Their self-righteousness had blinded them to it. He says, and you, I did that one work where I healed a whole man's body, and you marvel at it. There's that word marvel again. We're not talking about Captain America. Yeah, kids, love having you in the service. Thought you'd get a kick out of that. Love it. He says, you marvel at it. He says, you're amazed. It means, you're amazed that I would do it on the Sabbath. And yet, as we see in verse 22, he says, Moses instructed you in the law. He instructed you in the Old Testament, as did the fathers before that. Who's the fathers? This is the founders of the Jewish race. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. Okay? He says, Moses instructed you in the law, as did the fathers, to circumcise. What does that mean? It means to cut off the foreskin of every male on the eighth day of their lives. God gave this command, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 17. So he gave it to the patriarchs, 10 to 12, verses 10 to 12. But he also gave it through Moses again in Sinai, Exodus 12, 44 to 45. And the the work of circumcision was for a ceremonial cleansing. It symbolized a healing to symbolize God's covenant people. A cleansing, a healing, God's people. He says, and you're willing, notice this, you're willing to perform God's work in this way on the Sabbath day, verse 23, if the eighth day of the male child's life falls on the Sabbath so the law won't be broken. So wait, you're willing to break one law to uphold another? See, he's just nailing them right here. 
in love, trying to expose, he's not condemning them, he's trying to expose the hypocrisy to save their lives. He says, wait, you're willing to break the Sabbath if the baby's eighth day is on it. And you need to circumcise them. Yet you're angry with me. You're wanting to kill me because I healed a man's whole body and not just the foreskin. I healed a whole body. And you're mad at me because I did that on the Sabbath. He's using the argument from the lesser circumcision to the greater, the whole body healing. He's really, let's think about this, guys. Your self-righteousness has blinded you. You are missing the entire point. Verse 24, he says, do not judge. What is the word judge there? Because we hear all about this in the world today. Don't judge me. You're judging me. What is Jesus talking about of what judging means? Let's find out. He says, don't judge by appearances. The word judge there means this. Don't come to a decision or determine innocence or guilt right from wrong by appearances. That means by an outward appearance. By only by what you see. Well, I felt they were coming across that way, so I responded this. Well, that person didn't speak kindly. I I think they must be going through. They must not like me because... Don't judge by outward appearances, by what you feel, by what you only can see. There's a lot more going on. You and I, hey, can we just release ourselves from this? You and I never see the whole picture. In ourselves, in others, in the circumstances God allows, we never see the whole picture. But self-righteousness happens when we think we do and act on it. He says, don't judge by appearances. Don't judge by what you perceive with your eyes, what you see going on around you, but judge with what? Right judgment. Go back to the text. What does right judgment mean? Correct or righteous judgment according to God's standard. It's applying Christ's word with moral and theological integrity. Applying the word with moral and theological discernment over a situation. Because he's our authority. We aren't. He is the righteous one. We aren't. So it's using his word to judge rightly. He's not, Jesus isn't talking. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus telling us to like be condemning and judging people? No, it's the exact opposite. He's not saying the harsh condemning judgment that legalism or self-righteousness promotes. He says, judge by my standards what's right and wrong. Judge by my standards who you are and who I am. Not by who you want. Not by your standards. And Jesus says, think about the double standard that you're setting, that self-righteousness always leads to. He says, your quote-unquote judgment of me and my actions isn't based on the truth. It's not. You don't want to kill me because you're believing the truth. Your decisions, your judgments about me are not being made with my discernment and my wisdom because you would have believed it. Point one. You would have believed me who I am. But your judgment is based on your self-righteousness, opinions, and that you 
are trying to perceive, and think you do, perceive the whole truth. And it's blinding you to the truth of who I am and is leading you to condemn me. Because loved ones, honestly, hey, I gotta fight against this as much as anybody. This is the only place self-righteousness leads you to, condemning someone or something else. And ultimately doubting, blinds you from seeing the Lord and leads to doubting him. So live in the text. The Pharisees had made themselves, you know what they did? Notice you know what Jesus calls it? They made themselves their own standard. Do we like to do that, you and I? Make ourselves our own standard for what's right and wrong, what's wise and what isn't wise, what's who's innocent and who's guilty. Blame, blame, blame. This is what we do. This is what pride does. I'm the standard of godliness. I've yet to try. I don't think I will because I love my wife. To walk in and be like, I'm the standard of righteousness in this home, hon. Things are going to look a little different. That's not going to go well. It won't go well for me. It won't go well for you. I'm the standard. Their judgment wasn't God's judgment. Their opinion wasn't God's opinion. Their standard wasn't God's standard. Their discernment, their wisdom wasn't from God's wisdom. And the result is their judgment led nowhere but to condemnation of those around them who didn't meet their expectations who didn't meet their standards to protect their pride, to protect their self-righteousness. And it blinded them from the truth of who Jesus was and kept them from living under his authority and ultimately living out his will for their lives. They made themselves right or wise in their own eyes. Are you and I doing the same? Making ourselves right in our own eyes. I've got this figured out. You see the whole picture? You sure? I don't need God on this. Right in our own eyes and refuse to see the truth from God's standard or wisdom. How often do we do this too? Today, we live in a society, loved ones, that is obsessed with judging by appearances. You ever notice that? Is that right judgment? Jesus says, don't judge by outward appearances, but that's all this world is spiraling towards more and more. Outward appearances. And we think we see the whole picture and we know the whole truth and we're so quick to rush to judgment. Judgment about other people, judgment about our spouses, judgment about our kids, judgment about our brothers and sisters in Christ, judgment about our employers, and we're so quick to rush. Because all we see is the outward appearance. And we're not using right judgment. A world says, you don't need to judge by God's standard in his discernment of right and wrong because you are the standard. You are the standard. Go by your feelings. Go by your desires. Go by what you want. Don't judge your situation by God's wisdom or God's standard. You see the whole picture and you deserve it. There's our world. Oh, how easily we take this bait. Amen? Just like there's the bait, like a fisherman, right? Lure in the water, there's the bait, and we just take it. Self-righteous, because it appeals to our flesh so much. I'm the standard. And we view ourselves so much better, higher, holier than we actually are, because we're blinded to our own sin. We're blinded to our own temptations. And we, as a result, what happens? You only see what you want to see. 
the Pharisees only saw what they wanted to see, an excuse to kill. Jesus was trying to pull them out of that to something greater. And I wonder, you know, as we excuse things in ourselves and yet accuse them in others, this whole idea of self-righteousness, I wonder how much pain, I wonder how much division, I wonder how much anger, I wonder how much condemnation, I wonder how much spiritual apathy, and I wonder how much numbed love for Christ and fading desire to live faithfully under his authority is the result of this. I'm the standard. How much would change if we just went back to him, humbled ourselves before him, confessed our self-righteousness, and cried out, Jesus, you are the standard and not me. You are the standard for how I love You are the standard for the wisdom I get. You are the standard of discernment for what is right and what is wrong. That isn't based on what I feel in the moment. You are the standard of my obedience. You sacrificed your life. You are the standard of how I speak to people around me. You are the standard of how I view them. You are the standard of how I treat my children, my coworkers, my brothers and sisters in Christ. You are the standard for how I serve. No more of this I deserve business. I need to see things the way you see them, and I'm through trying to protect my self-righteousness, preserving myself. To obey God's will, we must walk in his wisdom. Question, are you living with right judgment? Or... Are you only judging by appearances and what's right in your own eyes to only see what you want to see, the bad, what's not the way you want it, or to get what you want to get? What do you need to repent of? What do I? It's been a hard week. What do I need to repent of that I'm excusing in myself but accusing in others? Where is Jesus not your standard of what is right and wrong? But you have become that. When that fear hits, when that anxiety starts to creep in, who's your standard? Are you using right judgment there? You gotta run to the cross, loved one. In that fear, it will always cloud your judgment. In the anxiety, run to Jesus in that moment. Don't sit in it. Don't let the enemy have a playground in your mind. Who's your standard of what's right and wrong? Are you using right judgment when it's uncomfortable for you? When you're being stretched in the trial, when God has entrusted you with something and you don't want to do it, you want to quit. And you just want to throw in the towel. Are you using right judgment there? Who's your standard? Right there. When you feel inadequate. See, our judgment is so clouded. Last quote on the screen. It's only when I begin to truly see myself for who I am that I will begin to see Christ for who he truly is. That's what self-righteousness keeps us from. Seeing us for who we truly are and blinding us to who Christ truly is. It's crucial. His authority, his sovereignty over my situation, his standard of love and grace and power and wisdom for me in it. I'm blinded to that if I'm focused on myself. And you may say this, well, how do I know if I'm living with right judgment? Like, how do I grow? 
in living with discernment, real fast, four things we see all throughout Scripture, okay? Write these down and the text with them. Number one, we need to get in the Word. So how do we grow in using right judgment, biblical discernment in our situations, in our trials? How do we grow? Number one, get in the Word. Get in the Word. Psalm 119, verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? Why? By guarding it according to your Word. Guarding it. Run to the word. Get to the word of God. Don't sit there in your feelings and be like, well, this. And then let the enemy train wreck your thinking. Run to the word. How do you keep your way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Number two, from that, we get in prayer. We get in prayer. We ask God for his discernment. I love the promise in James 1.5. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. What's that? Cry out to him in prayer who gives generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. But notice, let Scripture fuel your prayer. Let, scripture, let your prayers be Scripture-fed and then Spirit-led, calling out to God for that discernment, laying it all on the table, saying, I don't want my way, I want your wisdom. Here's the third one, ready? Godly counsel, get godly counsel. Proverbs 24 says this, Proverbs 24, 6, I love it. For by wise guidance... You can wage your war. And in the abundance of counselors, there's victory. Notice the counsel has to come. It's wise counsel. Those who are growing in their fear of the Lord and who love you more than your self-righteousness and are willing to tell you what won't feed it. Saying you're wrong here. Love you. This is a distortion you're believing. This is what God's word says. And they love you so much, they're willing to tell you the truth. And they won't protect your self-righteousness and ways to want to make it easy for yourself. Don't, don't, loved ones. And then fourthly is this, ready? Humble obedience. Get in the word, get in prayer, get godly counsel. Humble obedience is the last one. John 15, 10, Jesus says, if you obey my commands, you'll abide in my love. Humility crushes self-righteousness every time. Are you living with right judgment? Where do you need to go? So it's only fitting right now that we take time to remember how Christ displayed his divine authority and divine standard through his work on the cross on our behalf, through which he's made a way for us to come to him and live faithfully under his authority now and for eternity. And we do that through coming to the table, partaking of the Lord's Supper together, this Lord's Supper is a time to remember the death of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made on that cross over 2,000 years ago to pay the penalty for your sin and mine that we would walk in forgiveness and new life in him. And the two elements we remember here, number one, the bread, which represents his body that was crushed for us, and the juice, which rep represents his blood that was shed for us, that we would be cleansed and receive the forgiveness of sin. But as we come to the table, Scripture commands that we examine ourselves. This is a great message to sit here and examine yourself right now. Let's just, I know we're getting our ushers ready. Let's just be still right now. Bow our heads, get before the Lord, and examine ourselves. And say, God, search me. And know my heart right now. 
and test my anxious thoughts and see where the offensive ways are in me. Where's the self-righteousness? Where is my unbelief? Where am I seeking my glory and not your own? And lead me in the path everlasting. For whoever comes to the table and does not discern the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So let's take these next few moments to cast those on the Lord and humble ourselves under him. And if you're here and have never confessed Christ as your Savior, I want to say two things. Number one, I'm glad you're here. But number two, I'm going to say, let the communion elements pass by you. Because the table is only for those who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Then afterwards, come on up and talk. I want to talk to you about what that means to have a relationship with him. Let's go to the Lord right now. Ushers, you may come forward now. God, we commit this time to you. This is a sacred moment right here. Lord, thank you that you did not cease to tell us anything that would be good for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you see our hearts right now, and I pray that you would see people willing and ready to do business with you, that we would judge with right judgment, that we'd be filled with belief, and that we would be filled with a passion for the glory of the Lord. May it be so right now. In Jesus' name, amen.